0: Amen. Thank you, Brenton. Well, most of you know Matt Candler, but I just want to just say a sentence or two about him and pray for him. And uh, uh, I got to hear his message uh, Friday night, but I'm remembering this is your message. It's not mine yeah, it's house, my but, message. Is it's funny. not my message. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so, okay, so I'm going <laughs> to let you. Get it. And uh, Matt and Dana, they've been with us from day one, 21 years ago when we launched IHOP. They were right involved, fully involved in their hearts and helping and building and help with so many areas of leadership over the last 21 years. And you guys are a joy and a blessing to me personally, to our leadership team, to our family. And those of you that don't know them, they are rich with a long history of faithfulness and steadiness with the Lord. Father, I thank you for Matt Candler. I thank you for his leadership in the various areas in the school right now, the IHOPU I ask you, Lord, to release a spirit of wisdom and revelation that would stir our hearts and impart living understanding to us. In Jesus' name, amen. I love you, Matty Boy.
1: (laughs) Amen. Yes, Lord, we ask that you would incline our hearts to your heart this morning. Would you incline our hearts? Would you open our eyes to see wonderful things from your word, from your law? Lord, I ask that we would not only see your heart in the scriptures, that you would transform ours by the beholding of yours. Would you incline us, move us, draw us into your heart, open our eyes to see you. Lord, I ask that you would help us this morning to be as present with you as you are with us, unite us, I ask in the fear of the Lord, cause your gaze to rest upon our hearts. And Lord, I ask that you would cause us to be satisfied by your word, to rejoice in it, to be filled, to be strengthened and given courage to move forward by the grace of God, we ask. And everybody said, amen. All right, uh, this morning, I want to share on overcoming accusation with the oil of intercession. Overcoming accusation with the oil of intercession. And the, the main passage that we're gonna be in this morning, which we'll get to in a few moments, is out of Psalm 133. Now my heart this morning is for this to be a a continuation um, and a, 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 a pausing a bit longer on the themes of What Mike hit at the end of August a few weeks back when he shared out of Zechariah 3 and 4 and even the following week after that into September, um, he and Isaac shared on that as well and uh, reiterating it again. Giving some really helpful perspective on one of the main headlining themes and stories the Lord is intending upon to uh, incarnate in our very lives as a spiritual community and family. And so I'm not going to, uh, by the grace of God, just uh, give the message again that he did. So I'm going to point you to, if you're unfamiliar with what uh, Mike had shared on Zechariah 3 and 4 at the end of, of August, I believe it was August 30th, and it was titled The Black Horse, Zechariah 3 and 4, and had a little bit longer title. I'll just point you to that direction. But the question that he presented was simply this. How can a sinful people participate in God's glorious promises. And we looked at Zechariah 3 and 4 to answer that question, and he highlighted the prophetic significance to this spiritual community over the last decades as to how and why the Lord has highlighted those two particular chapters for us. I'm not going to go into that, but I really encourage you to, to go back and highlight that. So that question that he asked, how can a sinful people participate in God's glorious promises, he essentially answered in this, in my own words, that the way a sinful people participates in God's glorious promises, and in Zechariah 3, Joshua, the high priest of Israel, during the time frame of the rebuilding of the temple after the Babylonian exile, he is both himself... And representative of the nation of Israel as a sinful people, unfit and disqualified because of their sin to rebuild the temple because of their sin. So how can they still move forward in this? Well, the way that we can is by breaking our agreement with the accusation or the, um, uh, the way that Mike described it was the accusation narrative Uh, of the enemy, which seeks to highlight that which should disqualify us, our deficiencies, our failures, our weaknesses, and we break that agreement. Now, what he drew to our attention, which is where I want to kind of zoom in a bit more today, is that often those accusations of our disqualification, here's the catch, come come to us, they hit us through friends and family closest to us, and they come out of us also against friends and family closest to us. Let me say that again. That accusation of the enemy that seeks to disqualify us from God's calling and purpose— in priestly ministry and worship for God and moving forward in the grace and, and and the and the glory of God for our lives that He's called us to a glorious destiny, oftentimes. The way in which that the accuser seeks to to disqualify us is through our own mouths, seeing others through their disqualification and their weakness and their failure, or through the weakness of our own friends and family, seeing us predominantly through that lens. We are both the giver and the recipient of that narrative. And the way to break it is to enter into God's, story and narrative of our lives through his divine editing process of grace, mercy, and redemption. So here's the point. Therefore, mistreatment at the hands of those closest to us becomes, key idea, a transformational opportunity. To intercede and do good towards others as the Father and the Son have to us. Let me say that again mistreatment at the hands of others and oftentimes those closest to us becomes not just something that we try to survive and get through and just tolerate by a stiff armed or a casual distancing of ourselves but it's rather a transformational opportunity to begin to see those who mistreat us in a bigger narrative than their own failure, the very thing that we want in our failure. It becomes a transformational opportunity so that we're invited into that Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verses 44 to 45, reality. So if you have the notes, they're posted online. I'm underneath D and the passage here, Matthew 5, 44 to 45. Jesus says that we are to love our enemies, to bless those who curse you and do good to those who hate you and to pray for those who spitefully use you And persecute you, that you may be sons of your father. (laughs) In other words, if we walk out as challenging as it is those realities, something, if we do that, becomes the transformative agent to make us like the father and the son. It's a transformational opportunity, but this is hard. It's not only hard when we're mistreated, it's as we know, hard when we are those that have failed the very ones that we love the most. It's painful on both sides. We're going to get glimpses into that this morning. So a quick little example, David, he tells us that it was in Psalm 18, God's gentleness is what made him great. Now, We think, yes, God was so kind to David, and even in the midst of David's sin and failure, he still became great as king. But the greatness that David has in view there is not his kingship. It's the greatness of being transformed to have a heart more like the God that chose him. In other words, God's gentle dealings with David made him great in order to have a heart of mercy and a heart of kindness towards those who mistreated him. That was David's greatness. Yes, he was exalted as king and delivered because God delighted in him. But just because David entered into kingship doesn't mean that he was great in the eyes of the nations. Because Kings of, the, of, his, of David's day would have looked at David and thought, you're really not a king because you don't have anything, any of the things that kings pride themselves in, which is a lot of women and a lot of military warfare equipment and a lot of gold. You, you're like, don't really have any of that. You're not really a king. David's greatness was that he was gently dealt with and it transformed him to deal likewise with others when they were as weak as he was. And that's what Jesus is holding out for us in Matthew 5, 44. What I wanna do is I want us to picture, because this is, this is a very real and present danger and opportunity in a very present way for many of us listening this morning. Some of you um, are in the throes of feeling the power of your disqualification because of your own failure in loving someone dear to you, perhaps a child or a sibling or a spouse, and it's ended and it's been wrecked in a horrendous way. Others of you are on the receiving end of such mistreatment and it's very present and it's very powerful. And left to ourselves, our vision of moving forward in the grace of God it is simply toleration, coexistence. But the biblical portrait of, of what God desires in a people to dwell with and to worship him is so much more than having a, a casual agreement of, of common values and a toleration of one another that get excited when worship meetings. That is not the biblical vision of unity. And, and the Lord has so much more for us and not just that he wants us to work harder for more but he wants us to experience something that is only possible by first receiving in a fresh way his delight his patience his long suffering for us that we might extend it to others so what i want to do is i want i want to give us courage and strength this morning and and look at how does this, how do we walk this out? Are there other stories that can give us courage of what this means to walk, it, walk this out? And I want to continue with the idea of David, because this accusation strategy of the enemy to derail, to derail the prayer and worship, um, uh, not only movement, but the very prayer and worship movements of your own heart to God, the accusation strategy for you to view yourself as disqualified and others as disqualified is not new in fact it, it comes up in every time there is the building and the dedication of a sanctuary of worship in the scripture so as i mentioned zechariah 3 and 4 is before the uh, uh, in context to the rebuilding and dedication of the second temple well, what was interesting is Aaron was, or not Aaron, but uh, Joshua was a disqualified high priest, but the Lord had a different narrative through his grace and gentle dealings with over his life. He had a plan. And like Joshua, he was not the first potential disqualified high priest. About a 1,000 years earlier, Aaron was also a top contender for the disqualification of a high priest. And so what I want to do, and that was right before the dedication of the tabernacle of Moses. Also, Israel being called to enter into the glorious destiny of a priesthood as worshipers and lovers of God. So I want you to track with me here because I'm going to bring in a few different pictures. So at the end of the bottom of page one, I want to draw your attention to H, the story of Aaron's that's the high priest Aaron during Moses' day, disqualification from priestly service before the dedication of Moses' tabernacle was on the mind of David about 500 years later before the dedication of Solomon's temple. Oh my gosh, we're going through history so much. I feel like I'm we're traveling. There's so much time travel here. So hear me out here. So now we're going to leave Zechariah 3 and 4 and Joshua in the second temple. So we can just move on there. And now here we are and we're thinking, okay, this is not a new strategy of the enemy. He always seeks to highlight our disqualification of worshipers of God in context to uh, building the house of prayer. And so what we do is we look back and go, yeah, this was true in the time of Aaron and Moses, but... We're going to go to that through the lens of David in Psalm 133 because, well, let's let's do this. Go ahead. And if, you, if you're tracking on the notes, we're going to be at the top of page two. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. I give you a lot of detail for some of you Bible nerds, for some of the uh, background of Psalm 133, but I'll just, just, just enter into a story with me for a moment. The story is this. It's that picture with me, David, at the end of his life. Now, this is the man who had a zeal for God's house that made him a mockery in the nation. He wanted to build God a sanctuary of worship that far exceeded his own house of cedar in terms of beauty. He said, it's not okay that God dwells in a tent. I want to build for him a dwelling place on the earth. And while that desire of David was good, the Lord made it clear that his son would be the one that would build the temple. And so, but David, David comes with that zeal to build God, that house, up to the very precipice, the very edge of not actually building it, but gathering all of the finances, the building materials. He got the blueprints. He not only got the practicals, but he received by revelation from the hand of the Lord upon him, he received the details of all of the job descriptions of the priests and of the Levites and of the gatekeepers. And he wrote all of it down. And, and not only that, he also wrote songs, psalms for the dedication of that temple. So much so that when David was dead and gone and it was time for his son to build, all Solomon had to do was say, I guess we can start. Let's start. Let's go. Let's start building it, right? David had a zeal for the house of God. So we shouldn't, even though David was not alive during its building, we should not think it odd or strange that the man that had a zeal to build God a house and did everything but the actual building to actually write songs for its dedication. And that's the very thing that we find in Psalm 133. Psalm 133 is one of four psalms of David that he wrote, cast amidst a collection of 15 psalms called the Psalms of Ascent that were all sung at the dedication of Solomon's temple in 959, B.C., at the Feast of Tabernacles. Appropriate in light of the earlier announcement. So these 15 psalms were sung, both by the pilgrims making their descent down to Jerusalem for this, but also by the Levites on each of the 15 steps, they would sing one song as they ascended each step before they reached the very top that then peered into the very holy place where the sacrifices were made before God. And so David writes four psalms of that collection of 15 for the dedication. And he's thinking in Psalm 133, if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 133 with me. Psalm 133, David is inviting us to behold something. He's inviting us, I'll say it this way. Psalm 133 is, in this Japanese haiku, three-line, brevity-style psalm. You don't know what I mean? Don't worry about that. It's just short and simple, and a lot of depth and detail and imagery behind it. In three verses, he gives us two pictures that highlight one point about dwelling, brothers dwelling together in unity. He gives us three verses that highlight two pictures that illustrate how we actually contend for God's uh, life to be made manifest in the context of weak and broken, disqualified, sinful people. And so, because here's the deal. One more little point on the Psalms of Ascent. In Psalm 132, we know Psalm 132 Many of us do. If you, if you don't, I'll give you the point here. Psalm 132 is another psalmist that, it, that so knows, that writes about David's zeal for God's house that he would not rest until God's house was built. David's zeal to establish God's resting place, dwelling place on Mount Zion was known throughout. But here's the interesting thing. That dwelling place, God chose Zion He chose this place with weak and broken people, disqualified, sinful people. He wants to dwell with people. But here's the dilemma. God just doesn't want to dwell with people. God wants to dwell with people who dwell with one another in the way that he dwells with broken people. I'll say that again. This is the key. God, yes, wants a dwelling with people, to live in that Eden-like proximity, walking in the cool of the day. He wants to dwell with people, but he wants the people that he dwells with to dwell with one another, brothers, in the same way, quality, and manner that he dwells with guilty, disqualified people. He wants to dwell with us and invite us to dwell with one another in the way that he dwells with us. And that's what Psalm 133 gives us, two pictures of how that's unfolded. So at the bottom of page two, Roman number three, David invites us to behold the unforeseen vision of unity and worship. He says, behold, he goes, it, Join me in actually looking back. Picture David at the end of his life. He's trying to find where is a place in biblical history from David's vantage point where we can see the type of people that God is going to dwell with and how they are unified. And he goes, turn your eyes and gaze with me and lock in 500 years earlier during the time of Moses and Aaron. We're going to get there in verse 2. He goes, behold, How good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. That just seems like such a trivial statement. It's so great when we're all in unity. Behold, it's good, it's pleasant. But here's the thing we have to realize about unity and its being called good and pleasant it's that not everything that God calls good is pleasant. There are many things that God calls us to do that are good that we don't experience as pleasant or delightful. Here is where, with very simple words, we're invited to embrace a vision of unity that isn't just the doing of something good, but the actual feeling, pleasure in the doing of it. He goes, it's not enough that you do the right thing and do good for one another. He goes, I want you to feel delight as you dwell with broken people and as you show mercy, kindness, and grace with them the way that I do, the Lord would say to us. He said, it's it's not enough to have a vision of, okay, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna be nice to them. I'm gonna be good to them. I'm gonna I'm gonna simply just do it. The Lord's like, that, that's good. It's a good start. He goes, but I... I I want you to, when you bring the cup of cold water to the person that mistreated you, I want you to actually feel, do you, do you feel that it's pleasant? Do you feel the pleasure, the delight of it? He says, if you don't, he goes, I'm inviting you into the, to the deep center of the Trinity to actually be transformed from your heart to actually feel that delight. I don't, I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but it doesn't, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that the nation of Israel was not really well known for their unity in the 12 tribes. They were always in civil war and animosity, and at their core, they were all brothers. The greatest challenge of unity and, and entering into God's narrative for others is with those closest to us because they're the ones that we know the most, which includes their disqualifications, their sins and their failures, and and they ours. So this is what what David does. He goes, because I want you to behold a portrait of unity where God is gonna help us. Look at uh, on page three B. The first visual he gives us is of two brothers. He says, he goes, I'm gonna tell you, I'm gonna show you what it looks like where God will help us, he'll command life and blessing if we relate to one another in this way of unity. He says this, verse two, unity, brothers dwelling in unity, this is what it looks like. It looks like the precious oil upon the head, running down the head, the beard, the beard of Aaron running down the edge of his garment. I remember for years I'd read that and I'd just be like, that does not clarify unity to me at all. It doesn't help me. Oil, Unity, the picture we're looking for is oil running down the head. Well, this is what's happening here. David is inviting us to behold and to look back the time of Israel. Because remember, he is writing songs to dedicate Solomon's temple. He's inviting us to look back at the context of brotherly unity in the context of the dedication of Moses' tabernacle. It's interesting. That's where his mind went. And he says this. He says, we got to look at the story of Aaron to understand brotherly unity, which should make us ask, who's the unnamed brother? The unnamed brother is Moses. And this is what I want to draw our attention to. If you jump down to number four, I want to give you the little setup, the story of what's happening here. That is a picture of, of the kind of help and unity that the Lord is looking to anoint and to bless in our midst. So remember this, nation of Israel, delivered out of the hands of Egypt. They're brought to Sinai. Exodus 24, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, two of his sons, and 70 elders of Israel and Moses and Joshua, they go up, they have a meal with God they eat and drink, they behold his feet on the sapphire pavement, what? And they have a meal with God and it says the Lord didn't kill them. They see his feet, they have a meal with God. That's a privileged opportunity. As they come down, they come back down to the base of the mountain, Moses says to Aaron, he goes, I'm leaving you and her in charge to govern all of the people and their disputes. Then Moses goes up. He doesn't know for how long, but we know it's 40 days. And 40 days, that 40 days was a test for not only Aaron and her, but for the whole nation of, of Israel. And while Moses is on the mountain, What is the Lord giving him details of? He's giving him details for seven chapters on how the nation of Israel is gonna enter into worship before him through the construction of the tabernacle and all of, it's just beautiful. But this is what I wanna draw your attention to. Moses is up there. And in Exodus 29, the Lord tells Moses, I want Aaron to be the chief worship leader of the nation, the high priest. I've chosen him. And I want his sons to be those that are set apart for this ministry and leadership in the the place of worship. Moses knows that. But what the Lord knows, here's the setup, that Moses doesn't know yet to the end of his time on the 40 days is what's happening at the base of the mountain. Moses knows from the mouth of God that Aaron's been chosen according to his narrative to be the leader of worship. All the while, he's leading the nation in idolatry at the base of the mountain. But here's the setup. Aaron doesn't know what God has told Moses. Only Moses knows. He doesn't know that that's what he's been called to do or to be. Moses goes down the base of the mountain. The story unfolds. Well, well, what happens before Moses goes down is right before he goes down, the Lord says, "Um, I'm stand back essentially. I'm gonna wipe out the whole nation. Moses intercedes to push back the anger of the Lord and convinces the Lord to not wipe them out. But here's what I wanna draw your attention to from this scene is that Moses is tested here as the mediator of the nation between God and a sinful people. Would Moses, or say it this way, would the preservation of a stiff-necked, guilty, sinful nation be dearer to Moses' heart than Moses becoming the new head and founder of a a new kingdom of 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 a new kingdom, a new nation. Would Moses have that heart to actually intercede? Would he actually, because the Lord gives Moses the opportunity, he goes, I'm gonna start over with you if you want it. And God condescends and gives the call to the mediator. And it's a test. Essentially, it's a test. Has the heart of God been so uh, imparted and having transformed Moses' heart to such a degree that the very name that God would proclaim over Moses later in Exodus 34, slow to anchor, gracious, abounding in love, um, faithful for steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and sin. If that heart of God hasn't been formed into Moses and he's testing Moses, will you contend as mediator for a guilty, stiff-necked, condemned people? Or is your own fulfillment and calling more precious to you? And Moses cries out for them to be preserved. But something wild happens. He gets to the bottom. The whole scenario unfolds. Aaron's like, they pressured me. He blames the people. And then they were blaming Moses. And he had just had a meal with God in Exodus 24 days earlier on Mount Sinai. And so here's Moses And he goes back up for 40 days on the mountain to intercede. And we're told in Deuteronomy chapter 9, I'm at the bottom of page 3, verses 19 to 20. It's verse 20 specifically. And the Lord was very angry with Aaron and would have destroyed him. So I prayed for Aaron also at that time. But here's my question what did he pray? Why did he pray? Because if you're like me, and we read Matthew five forty four, pray for your enemies or those that fail you or mistreat you or accuse you. You think this is what this, this is what it this is what naturally comes out of my heart. Lord, I pray for them. I don't really have much more besides I, saying I'm praying for them is somehow my prayer for them. Lord, I just pray for them. to help them see that they're treating me so bad. You know, whatever, whatever it is. But like, it, I just say, I pray for them. But what did Moses pray? My guess is that he was interceding and bringing to remembrance to God who never forgot what he intended Aaron to be and to do. Lord, you said Aaron would be the high priest of the nation. He's led the nation in idolatry, failed, failed, Three thousand men have died, and you plagued the nation, likely with sickness. But I lay my life down, and Moses poured out his intercession for Aaron's destiny and call, regardless and despite of his failure, and regardless of Moses's own pain of feeling betrayed by his own younger, or excuse me, older brother. So Moses's. In poured, pouring out intercession for God's original narrative and story of Aaron, of who he was called to be. That's how he prayed for him. In other words, Moses labored to contend for Aaron to enter into something that was far bigger than that which should disqualify him, just like Joshua about a thousand years later. This is what's on David's mind. And so, what I would propose, if you're on, still tracking with me on the notes on page four, is that, let's give a sentence on what is the oil that represents unity. It's this. The picture is simply this. Air, or Moses is interceding, pouring out his soul on behalf of what God always intended Aaron to be and to do. And then about a year later, after the construction of the tabernacle of Moses, in Exodus chapter 40, Moses takes, as the Lord commanded on Mount Sinai, which was likely still, which was likely in context to while Aaron was sinning and leading the people in idolatry at the base. Moses takes oil, the precious oil of anointing. It was not common. It was fragrant. It was only used for very specific situations and contexts with a very specific instructions on how to make it. And Moses takes that consecrating oil that represents who Aaron was always supposed to be. And Moses pours it out on Aaron about a year later One year after idol worship, being the chief leader of idol worship, pours it out, and it hits Aaron's head. And it comes down his beard. And the excessiveness, it pours all the way down, the very bottom of his robe and of his garment. And the Lord says through the mouth of David, that is what unity is. That's it. It's when we contend for one another, believing a bigger, grander story through God's mercy, redemption, and grace and divine editing process, where we can actually see those who betray, hurt, mistreat, offend us, and not limit how we view, see, feel about them in that little myopic vantage point and we connect to God's vantage point and we take and we pour out an in intercession that which the oil represents. So I would propose that the oil that flowed on Aaron's head and beard and down his garment as the high priest was merely representative of the oil of intercession that Moses poured out before God as a mediator and intercessor, crying out for God's original call, destiny, and purpose for Aaron. And he says, that's how brothers, and the only way that brothers will dwell in unity. When they relate to one another the way that Moses did for Aaron. But it doesn't stop there. Some of us are Aaron. All of us are, actually. And I'll I'll highlight David for this. So David's writing this psalm. He's gonna be dead when they dedicate the temple and he's trying to get this picture. I'm not gonna have time to look at the second picture related to Mount Hermon and Mount Zion, but no one looked at Mount Zion and thought, man, that's a mountain. It, the Lord calls that which does not exist as though it does. He intended for God to dwell there. And the whole point is that, that, the, that the strength given to us is to be used not for our own advantage, but for the advantage of others. So the dew, the life-giving water source in dew was to be shared on Mount Zion in the way that Moses um, poured out intercession for Aaron. But David, think of David now. Now, what's interesting about David, I believe that David was completely relating to both Moses and Aaron in the story in the same way that we're invited to. David knew the plight of Moses in the sense that he knew the betrayal of close friends and family, of his own father-in-law, Saul, of his own wife, of his own tribe, the tribe of Judah, of his own son, Absalom. He knew the pain of that, like Moses knew the pain of being turned against by a whole nation that was delivered through his leadership by the grace of God. He knew that pain of betrayal, but he also knew the privilege that Moses knew to intercede on behalf of people as weak and broken as he was, which is why he says in Psalm 16 that even the weak and broken saints are the excellent ones in whom his delight is in. So David can relate to the betrayal that Moses knew and the pain of leadership that Moses knew, but it doesn't stop there. David can relate to Aaron. If there's anyone that can relate to the pain and the disqualification to being involved in worship at all, like Aaron, it's David. Through the breaking all, almost all of the 10 commandments, sleeping with Bathsheba, murdering her husband, only about a year and a half after he establishes the tabernacle of David, if there is anyone worthy of disqualification from the privilege of a short-windowed priestly service of sitting before the ark like David, it was him that was worthy of disqualification. He knew the pain of uh, of the betrayal and rejection and the privilege of intercession like Moses, and he knew likewise the pain of having to view our own life through the redemptive mercy and grace of God and the patience for others to view us and our failure in the same way. Because it takes patience. Just because we say we're sorry because of our pain and failure doesn't mean that people can see us through the divine storyline that God has given us. The bottom of page four, what we find is that E, that all of us, like Aaron, the Lord is invited to be a kingdom of priests, worshipers, and lovers of God. And the Lord intends to dwell among us. But he intends to dwell among us with a people who have learned and been transformed in such a degree that we dwell brother to brother, sister to sister, family to family, tribe to tribe, community to community, stream of the body of Christ, stream of the body of the Christ. You know, he wants to dwell with us, a people who have learned to dwell with one another in the way that he has dwelt with us, which is portrayed as Moses, portrayed as he did. Even as David rejoiced even in those that hurt him most like Saul. He wrote a, he wrote songs about celebrating their victories. And it wasn't uh, a reach. He actually believed it because he was connected to God's storyline. So the glory of this is all of us are invited into this grand storyline, which ultimately is Christ's, to where our greater older brother, Jesus, has descended from a much higher mountain than Herman in order to give the strength of his own heart in such a way that we would be transformed one to another, that collectively as a family, we could dwell with God forever. And he invites us essentially in Philippians 2, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ, that the privilege that he had in his standing with God, he did not consider to be used for his own advantage, but he used not just because it was right, but because he found great joy in expressing the very nature and heart of who the Trinity is at their core. At the core. He did not consider it inappropriate to come in the incarnation in the likeness of sinful flesh to meet us at our weakest place and just like Aaron say, You're guilty of idol worship. This is Romans, we've exchanged the image of God and our glorious calling to be worshipers of God. We've exchanged and replaced it for something far less. And he says, you're an idol worshiper and a leader in it, just like Aaron. But I have a different plan that I have always intended for you. And he speaks to us grace. And if we connect to that, it's intended to transform us so we can extend the same reality to others in their mistreatment of us and give them patience when we blow it like Aaron to enter into God's narrative in the meantime. The worship team could come on up. The biblical vision of community or people in unity is nothing less than guilty, stiff necked, rebellious people who are transformed by the gentleness of God into his great heart, and therefore brought into conformity and union with the very Trinity itself, as Jesus prays in John seventeen twenty three. His ultimate aim is not just that we would relate to one another because it's right that we relate godly. It's that second word in verse 1 of Psalm 133. He wants it to be pleasing to us. In other words, when we are lavish in the pouring out of intercession for those that mistreat us, represented by the oil that Moses poured on Aaron in his failure, He wants our feeling to be, I love that I'm doing this because we've been so transformed into God's heart. And it's pretty interesting.